you've uh, peeked at your TV schedule tonight, you may notice that on uh, TBS, a new version of High Noon is coming out. But of course, the, the remake tonight, as I've read, as most remakes are, they anticipate it falling far short because nobody can replace Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, and that wonderful countdown to the inevitable showdown. And what makes this movie so great, I think, is because uh, of the tension that is there of the inevitable deadline of having to face it. But the review I read said that the remake struggles with this and doesn't, doesn't provide a whole lot of tension to where they, they said you could have renamed the movie instead of High Noon, you could have named it Late Afternoon around 5-ish. And I like High Noon so much because I relate to that. I relate to deadlines. And I don't know if you do in the same way, particularly in my line of work. Uh, it doesn't matter who I marry, who I bury, what kind of holiday, what kind of, what happens during the week that's extra. Sunday morning, 1045 always comes. The exact same time every week. No matter what happens. And I have to stand and deliver. Deadlines is definitely part of what I do. It's probably part of what you do, too. What high noon for me is, is 10.45 a.m. High noon for you may be high 5, high 5 p.m. You've got to get done by a certain time. And not only in the vocational realm at home, the same way, we've got bills that have to be paid by a certain day. And with many projects and deadlines, I don't know what I would do if it wasn't for the last minute. Because that's usually when I get a lot of my stuff done, is the last minute. Of course, that's what the last minute is for, isn't it? It's to get stuff done that we've procrastinated on the whole time. What would happen if you realized that you had a deadline or a high noon in your spiritual life? That high noon today was the time that you were going to stand before God. Well, let's say tomorrow. Okay, we'll give you another day. Let's say tomorrow. High noon tomorrow, you're going to be standing before Almighty God. If you knew that you had a deadline like that, how would that affect your life? Or would it? I want to ask you to look with me in the Bible at 1 Peter, book of 1 Peter, chapter, five, uh, chapter 4. Chapter 4. As Peter basically comes off of the idea that we do have a spiritual deadline. And from that, we have implications for our life. And if you've been with us throughout our series, as we've talked about faith in times like these, which is what the book of 1 Peter is about, you remember that Peter has taught us all throughout the book to keep a perspective that's beyond here and now, particularly beyond here and now regarding our problems. Because our problems and our pain seem to be the, the biggest thing, the hurt is so bad that that's just about all that we can focus on, and we'll focus on right here and now in our life, and we won't think about the broader implications, particularly of forever. And Peter says you absolutely have to think beyond the here and now if you're to make it, if you're to live out your faith in times like these. You have to think beyond the here and now. Keep an eternal perspective. He says fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus comes, on the, when uh, Jesus is revealed. And that has some implications on our behavior. And as we've gone through the book, we've seen the implications. Behavior toward the government, behavior in the workplace, behavior in the home, 
behavior that ought to have an ever-ready message on our lips for anybody that asks us why we have hope. And that message, of course, is that, that you don't have to go to hell for your sins because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And if you will place your faith in Him, your sins are forgiven. Apart from any good work, apart from any church attendance, apart from baptism, apart from any good work that you could do, simply by faith in Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, and you go to heaven. That is the message we're to have on our lips. And if you were with us last week, you remember that Peter came off of that message and said, okay, since Christ has died, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself now with the same purpose and live no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And now Peter, this week, today, is going to teach us what the will of God is for us as we live, no longer for the lusts of men, but now for the will of God. We have an impending high noon deadline coming up. How are we to live now? And he gives us four, you might say, various and Sunday things. We'll call them Sunday things instead of sundries as to how we're to live until high noon. Verse 7 of chapter 4 is where we'll begin. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is at hand. There's our high noon. There's our deadline. Time is short. We don't have it forever. And so there's got to be a point where you quit living for the past and you begin to live for the future. And I don't want you to overlook the word, therefore. It's a, it's a word that's so common in the Bible and yet is so absolutely essential if you're to understand the message of the Bible. That is, I've told you there's something in the past, therefore, here's how you live in the future. Because the time is short, because we have a deadline, therefore, and he gives us two commands, really synonyms here. Be of sound judgment. That means be able to be in your right mind, to think clearly, and be of sober spirit. Of course, this contrasts literal drunkenness to uh, literal soberness, and he applies that to your mind. When you're drunk, of course, you're not able to use your mind. When you are sober, of course, you're able to use your mind. And so he says you need to be of sound judgment and sober spirit. That is to be in control of your thought process. And for what purpose are we have such a mastery of our minds? What is so important as we have a deadline that we're to focus upon? Peter says, for the purpose of prayer. I don't know about you, but as I read through the Bible, there are times that prayer jumps out in the absolute oddest spots. You read through the Bible and you see a guy named Samuel in the Old Testament telling Israel, far be it from me that I should sin against God by failing to pray for you. Well, okay, so you're telling me that if I don't pray, that's wrong. That's a sin against God. That's one. There's several that have popped out for me. Another one we've even read here in 1 Peter where he says that the husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. We talked about that several weeks ago. How you, how you live with your spouse affects your prayers. Never would have put those two together if Peter hadn't said it. But probably the, the creme de la creme of all odd places of prayer is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians where he talks in the context of sex inside a marriage and he tells a married couple, he says, stop depriving one another 
except for a time by mutual consent, so that you may pray. And I remember like one of the first times I read that, and I really got what Paul was saying. I thought, you know what, Paul? That's great. That sounds real spiritual. But I'll be honest with you, that's not really what I'm thinking about during that time. And really, that's more of a, of a comment on me than it is on the text and on what God has in our minds. That prayer is so absolutely important and crucial for our lives that it is to take the place of times, even something that is so crucial in a marriage relationship. But only for a time, Paul says, thank God. It is that important. So Peter's telling us, I think, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you could essentially summarize it like this. He says, because the end is near, keep your mind prayer ready. Ready for prayer. If you've ever read anything about the life of George Mueller, this guy, as far as his prayer life, is one of the most encouraging, at the same time one of the most absolutely convicting little biographies you'll read. Because the guy had an incredible prayer life. And one of the times he said he was praying... Uh, in 1844, he says, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. And then there's a 36-year gap in his diary. And then he writes this. But I hope in God and I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. And then 52 years after he began to pray... Both of these two men were finally converted after George Mueller died. You see, I think the reason prayer seems to pop up in such odd spots in the Bible, in contexts that we would never think about praying, is because prayer is not to us the absolutely essential thing that it ought to be in the lives of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Peter himself wrote earlier in the book, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But do we really believe that? Peter shifts his focus now from our relationship to God now to our relationship with each other. Again, because time is short, because there is urgency, because there's a deadline, therefore, how are we to live? Peter says in verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Remember when Jesus was asked to summarize what he felt like was the most important commandment in the Old Testament? Remember what he said? He said, love. Love God and love people. Essentially, essentially, he said, you can summarize the whole Old Testament with one command, love. 
And I think that's why Peter here says, when he leaves the realm of our relationship with God and now says what's to be our priority with relationship to one another, he says, above all, that is, first priority, keep fervent in your love for one another. The love there, of course, is the, the, uh, the unselfish love. It's not the love of feeling. It's not the love of fellowship, of being around, enjoying being around other people. It's the love of, of showing love to people when you don't enjoy being around them, when they're really kind of a hassle to be around. That's the kind of love. And that's why, incidentally, Peter says you get to keep fervent in it. And that's a beautiful little word, fervent, not so much in English, but what he says in the original is talks about stretching. And you've got a picture of Michael Johnson here that gives you an, an, an excellent picture of what he talks about because the original word was used of athletes as they would stretch and as they would strain and do all their best in their muscle, every muscle taut, toward the purpose of winning that goal. Peter says that is the kind of a strain and stretch that you are to have in your love for one another. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. It is hard, and it requires concentration, and it requires sacrifice, self-sacrifice on your part. It's a beautiful, beautiful word picture that he gives. When people betray you, when people fail you, when people... Do the most difficult things that you ever have to deal with in your life. That's the kind of point that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about when it feels good. He's talking about when love has to cover a multitude of sins. A multitude of sins. I want to paraphrase what Peter is saying. Again, because the end is near, he says strenuously love even though you don't feel like it. That's, that's what he's saying. When you love only those who love you, Jesus said even the unbelievers do that. That's easy. It's easy to love everybody that loves you. What Peter is saying is unconditionally love, even those who are unlovable. And that's hard. That is just flat hard. It's hard enough to love the ones you love, isn't it? Much less to love the ones that you don't really even love. What is it that makes a fellowship biblical as opposed to just social? You ever thought about that? What makes our gathering here today biblical other than the fact that the Bible is here in the room? What makes it biblical and not just social? And beyond this, uh, this gathering, think about the gatherings that happen in the midweek as you go to your Bible study or as you go to a group and you pray or you're involved in some sense with other Christians. What makes it biblical and not just social? Social is important, don't get me wrong. We all need that kind of an, a cheers atmosphere where everybody knows your name. Okay, we, we need that kind of an atmosphere. But we also need something that goes far beyond somebody knowing my name and shaking my hand and slapping my back and walking off while on the inside I'm dying. David Getz shared a story one time that I feel is important enough to repeat and I could paraphrase it for you, but he wrote it so well, I'd like to read what he wrote. He said, For the past seven years, my wife and I participated in a small group at our church, which at present comprises five couples. 
we, we cheered when this year two other women in the group announced their pregnancies and we prayed fervently for safe deliveries and healthy babies. Both women were due within weeks of each other, and in October the woman who was due first became concerned when her due date came and went. She said the baby seemed to be moving less. That was Saturday, but the ultrasound detected a strong heartbeat on Monday. On Tuesday, there was no heartbeat. On Wednesday morning, she gave birth to Patrick Lincoln, whom we would never get to know. The umbilical cord was wrapped twice around his neck. My wife and I and several others from our small group were at the hospital Wednesday when Patrick was born. We attempted to pray. We huddled together, sobbing, staring down at our shoes. Then we all went to the delivery room to see Patrick's mom and his body, and the week dragged by. After the funeral, we collapsed from exhaustion. It was the saddest week of my life since my grandfather died 12 years ago. And in grieving with parents and other members of my small group, I learned an old truth that much of our spiritual development happens only through suffering. But in this life, suffering is not evenly meted out, especially here in the suburbs, which tend to secret away suffering and death. One can go for long stretches without smelling the stench of death. I had gone 12 years without deep mourning. The community of our church forced me into relationship with a small group of people who are becoming closer than family. I was forced to suffer loss, vicariously but real nonetheless. The church's community is not just a place, and this is key, the church's community is not just a place for the suffering to find comfort, but for the comfortable to find suffering. The kind of relationship that takes us beyond the atmosphere of cheers, where everybody knows your name and it's just a good social place to be, to an atmosphere that is distinctly biblical, is when this kind of pain comes in life. The pain either from tragedy or the pain from absolutely dumb decisions that wreck families. That you come to the scripture that says, above all, primarily, keep fervent in your love for one another. Stretch and strain, because love and only this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. And the word there, covers, doesn't mean that you hide it and you don't deal with it. It's a word that means that it's covered in the sense that you don't see it. You forgive. And only a love that has been forgiven can forgive others the same way. Because the end is near, strenuously love, though you don't feel like it. Peter's going to go on now, and he's going to show us how this kind of a selfless love branches and goes a couple of very important directions. The first is stated so simply, I don't know how I could, uh, how I could make it any more simple for you to understand. Verse 9, very simply said, Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Hospitable is uh, a great little word. It has nothing to do with hospitals. It has everything to do with... Uh, it's, it's, a word, it's one word that's made from two, originally. It's a word that means a lover or a friend of guests or of strangers. If you're a lover of strangers or you're a friend of guests is the idea of hospitality. 
And you do it, and you're a friend, you invite people not only in your home, but into your life without grumbling, without complaining. So simply to say, say it this way, because the end is near, another of the various and Sunday things that we need to make a priority before our high noon deadline is to share yourself and your stuff without grumbling. Share yourself and your stuff without grumbling. I can't think of a better example than this, truly, than Brian, Brian Collins. Those of you who know this guy know he is truly the epitome of hospitality. In the years that I have known him, I have no idea how many cups of coffee he has bought me. I have no idea how many books he's given me. He, he says, you want that book? Yeah, take it. Uh, and without grumbling, truly, sincerely, and even cheerfully, this guy has been my friend. And uh, in fact, I remember one time him telling me, Wayne, everything I have is yours, except Lori. <laughs> the guy is hospitable, and I think very well. Those of you who know him cannot deny it's true. Very hospitable and without grumbling. The selfless love not only overflows in hospitality, but in one final area that is absolutely essential for the health of every single person that's here. We see that in verse 10. Peter says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but Peter is a common thread that's gone through the last several verses. And that is, he uses the phrase, one another. He said, keep fervent in your love for one another. He said, be hospitable to one another. And now he says, you've got, you got a gift employed in serving one another. It's not one to others, but a healthy Christian relationship, a healthy Christian life is one another. And I, and I want to encourage you to grow beyond Sunday morning. I know for some of you that's all you can do and that is okay. But there's going to come a time in your life where you start to get settled in your Christian life and you need to grow beyond Sunday morning. Because Sunday morning is easy to come in and fake it. Sunday morning is easy to come in and just have your back rubbed. And that's okay. We need it. We all need to come in and be refreshed. And I take it as one of my primary responsibilities to encourage you with the Word of God and to let you be passive during this hour and encourage you that the Lord Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But if this hour is all that is your Christian life, there is so much more that you are missing. This is one to others. It's not one another. And that's what Peter's teaching here. I want you to picture for just a second. Pretend that you are, you are a member of a family that lives with four or five, let's say five other families in a small house. You're all crammed in one small house. And you're poor, and it's very difficult for you to even find your next meal. Okay? And you're walking down the street one day, and this lady comes up to you who is aware of your plight. And she says to you, look, I've been aware of your situation for some months now. I want you to take this box home. And I'm going to provide you a box just like this as long as I can. When you take the box home, you open it up there with your family, 
and you see that there's enough food in there for you and for everybody else in your house for the month. Now, what would you do if that scenario were true? Would you eat and then hide the box in your closet and not share with those other families? No, you wouldn't, and neither would I. We would immediately share the good news and we would share that food with everybody else there in our extended family there living within our home. The exact same illustration is, 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 is essentially what Peter's telling us here. That the gift that each individual believer in Jesus Christ has received is not a gift to you. It is a gift to the body, to the whole church. And to not employ that gift, to use Peter's word, is essentially to do that scenario that I described, of taking your box of stuff and putting it in the closet while the rest of your extended family struggles. Every person has a gift, Peter says, has a special gift, every single believer in Jesus Christ. I read about, some time ago, a plague of locusts at the turn of the century that absolutely devastated the plains here in the States. And as they swept across Nebraska and Iowa and Kansas over just a few days, less than a week, they did over a half a billion dollars worth of damage. And this was at the turn of the century, half a billion. And as I read that, I thought about the proverb that says, the locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. Because it's a beautiful picture of organized disorganization. You've ever been around a lot of locusts. We've got a lot of grasshoppers here now. Have you ever noticed how God gave terrible navigation system to the grasshopper? One of them this week, I kid you not, I was walking down the street and he jumped and he just hit me square in the chin. I mean, maybe he meant to. But I thought, come on, man. I mean, didn't you see it was coming? Were you trying to jump on me or what? Locusts are a lot of the same way. There's no organization to them and yet you get a bunch of them together working in community even though there's no organization and they can lay waste a field in a matter of minutes. And they had no organization. And I think the proverb is given there in Proverbs 30 that talks about the locust to give us the implication that we as a group as well can be organized. And we have a leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has promised us that his purpose, even though the gates of hell should come against it, his purpose will not fail. So you've got a winning team. You've got a winning cause. We should come together and work together under our leader, Jesus Christ. And the gifts that we have been given, not to us, but to the church, we should employ and use in serving one another. And everybody's got a different gift. This cartoon illustrates this well. This is great. Basketball, everybody's down and hurt. And the ref says, that is so cool. All ten players die for the ball at the same time. Now that is disorganization, isn't it? And yet that's often what you have in, sometimes in community, where you've got everybody trying to do the same thing, or everybody thinks that if they don't, if they aren't the one grabbing the ball and scoring, as it were, that they're not the one that's important. I want you to look at what Peter says in verse 11. He goes on to say, Whoever speaks... Let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength, as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, he says each one has a gift, but we don't have the same gifts. We're not, our, we're not all called to die for the ball. Some are called to block. Some are called to pass. Some are called to shoot. All are called to play, but not all the same position. And he divides them basically into two camps. You've got the, speak, the speakers and you've got the servers. Those who are involved in some kind of a speaking role. And that's not just what I'm doing now. This is some of you Sunday school teachers who teach these kids whose ears are wide open and listening to you. You don't think they are. You think they're running all over the walls. But they're listening to you. Myself, I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ in the influence of my Sunday school. I think, when I was about eight years old. Uh, and the same is true of you. You can have an influence in somebody's life through the speaking. So if speaking is what you're doing, do so as if the very utterances of God, that is, the very words of God. And maybe speaking is not where God has gifted you. Not necessarily public speaking, but any, any kind of a speaking ability. Then you are gifted in the area of serving. And he says, here you serve by the strength which God supplies. Why is it that it's for the speaking as if the utterances of God and, and serving as if from the strength which God supplies? You, you speak as if from God and you serve as if from God so that it is God, Peter says, who may be glorified and not we ourselves. God is the one who should get the glory from what you do. You say, well, I'm not sure what I'm gifted at. What do you enjoy doing that helps other people? That is a big clue as to what God has gifted you toward. And you can develop and hone that gift to where you can be even more effective and more effective and more effective for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the key is, as each one has received it, employ it. So you could say it this way, because the end is near, serve others for God's glory, relying on God's strength. For God's glory, from God's strength. I read some time ago about Mr. Rogers, the real Mr. Rogers. You know, he has a life beyond TV. And he, has, he went to California one time to visit a little boy who had cerebral palsy. And this little boy heard that Mr. Rogers was coming, and it got so nervous and so anxious that when Mr. Rogers arrived, this little boy began hitting himself and hating himself. And very often this little boy says that he wished that he were dead because of his condition. When Mr. Rogers walked in the room, this little boy was so overcome when Mr. Rogers walked over to him and said, Would you do something for me? And the little boy typed on his computer, Y-E-S. Mr. Rogers said, Would you pray for me? And this kid, who, who had been prayed for his whole life, and the first time somebody asks to be prayed for, totally revolutionized his life. That he no longer felt like his life was without purpose. He had always taken, 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 and no one had ever asked him for anything, figuring he had nothing to give. Mr. Rogers was asked after that, he said, hey, how'd you know that that would encourage that little boy? And he said, I didn't do it necessarily to encourage that little boy. 
I figured anybody that's gone through that much struggle must really be close to God, and I wanted him to pray for me. And this little boy no longer wanted to die after that and said he didn't really know how, but he was going to try to keep Mr. Rogers in his prayers. And I know that there may be some of you, perhaps not with the cerebral palsy, but you've got some kind of a defect. Either it's a past that you feel like has, uh, has disqualified you from having any kind of a contribution to the body of Christ. We can take a lesson from Mr. Rogers. We can take a lesson. We don't even have to do that. We can take a lesson from the Bible here, where Peter says that every single person who has believed in Jesus Christ has a special gift. But I've got a past. You have a special gift that you can contribute to the benefit of others in this room. You may be blown away by the fact that the body of Christ needs you because you've always taken from the body of Christ and never given. Again, there is such a small part of the Christian life you're living if you only take and don't give. Jesus says it is better to give than receive. What does he mean? Again, that's like that prayer thing. It's like it pops out. It makes no sense. It makes no sense because that's not where we are yet. But when you begin to do that, you realize the joy that's there that is never there if we're only a taker. And that is there for you when you give. Peter has given us a deadline. The time is near. The time is at hand. The time is short. The deadline is coming. And so he gives us a list here of various and, you might say, Sunday things that we need to focus on until that deadline comes. And all of them are essential. Prayer, love, hospitality, and serving. Prayer, you do it from selflessness. Here's the, here's the thread that goes through them. It's selflessness. You can't pray with the right mind and be selfish. You can't love others selflessly and be selfish. You can't give in hospitality grumbling if you're selfish. And certainly you can't serve others if you're selfish. Peter says keep the eternal perspective here. And it, it essentially comes down to this. You've got a deadline. We all do. For whom are you going to live the rest of the time in the flesh? No longer for the less of men, but for the will of God. Let's pray together. Father, we take encouragement from the passage today, as well as conviction. I know that there's none of us, myself included, who can run down this list of various things we've looked at and say, yep, we've got that nailed. We do that perfectly. We can all grow, and we've all, I think, been challenged from the Word of God this morning. And yet, Lord, we can also all be encouraged because we know that this list of things that we are to do has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that you love us and that we're able to go to heaven simply by your grace. So, Lord, help us to see the deadline that is coming the high noon, the inevitable stopping of all things that could happen at any moment. Help us to see that not in a fearful sense, but help us to see it in a sense of anticipation and urgency that we want to do all we can in prayer, in love, in hospitality, in service, not to earn your favor, but because we already have it and that we want to live for him who died for us. We pray in Christ's name.
Amen. Thank you. Lord bless you.